You may turn to Joshua chapter 3 if you brought your Bibles. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Joshua chapter 3. Last week we began a brand new series on the book of Joshua entitled Unstoppable. And just in case somebody else's OCD flared up last week, Unstoppable really is spelled with two P's. So don't let that distract you if you're looking at it. Is that right? Did they get that right? We began last week by saying one of the major themes you're going to find throughout the book of Joshua is that God always keeps his promises. If he said it, he will deliver it. He is the one who will always, 100% guaranteed, keep his word. Now, having said that, we recognize, as we said last week, that God made a promise to Abraham and affirmed that in Isaac and Jacob and then waited 500 years to see the fruition of that promise come to pass in the life of Joshua. So sometimes when God makes you a promise, you might feel like you were in the middle of the 500 years, waiting and waiting and how much longer and where is God at. And in that, we under waiting period might call for us time of faith and trust and boldness and courage. And we also talked last week that entering into God's promises is typically a journey. That it isn't always a one-time boom, there it is, God promised it, He now delivered it. Sometimes it's a journey in our own life so that when you begin to read Joshua chapter 1 and you end at Joshua 24, it's about 35 years that God, that God has fulfilled His promise to the people of Israel through Joshua's leadership. And so what I would say to you this morning is there are 24 chapters in the book of Joshua and I'm not going to cover all of them in an eight-week period of time. But I'd love for you over the next eight weeks to read the whole book of Joshua. It will not be any challenge to you in eight weeks' time to read Joshua. So if I skip major portions of it, go home and read it. Don't, don't skip it in your own personal study. And then we'll talk about different, like we'll be in Joshua 3 this morning, which means I've skipped the entire second chapter of Joshua. But it's a great story about Rahab the prostitute and how he helps the Israelites in terms of sending out spies into the land. So go home and read it because if I were to preach on it, I would talk about that in the story we find that receiving God's promises, we should be offensive in it and aggressive. We should have an aggressive posture, not just be passive, that we should send out spies. And in that, God will oftentimes provide safety in the most unlikely of places. I mean, a, God used a prostitute to help deliver his people and to rescue his people from harm. And in the story you hear about news started to spread of what God did to the other nations and how he conquered them. And it says in the text in chapter 2 that it made their hearts melt with fear. So in that exact same way, we should be aggressive. We should be offensive in our strategy. We should get to know the strategy of the enemies of God. Not to be fixated on them, but just so we're aware and know where uh, uh, Satan attacks us. And then with courage, we should recount in our own lives the story of God's power. And in that, let the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world melt in fear. That's if I were going to preach on Joshua chapter 2. You're welcome. That's sermon number 1. Sermon number two. Let's get right to it. Joshua chapter three, beginning in verse one. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim. Now, let's just stop for just a moment. Let's just all collectively say, aren't you glad we don't live in Shittim? I don't want to keep saying that, so I'm just kind of glad. I mean, I know sometimes it might feel like that's where your life is and that's where you live, but we're moving on this morning, so we don't have to stay there for long. And they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Verse two. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. So Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. 
We begin our story here in chapter 3 with the officers going among the people, giving them directions and informing them of the plans in which they're about to participate in. And I want you to note that the people, they're preparing themselves for God's mighty power and activity. And I love the picture of this, right? Sometimes God does show up and He shocks us. Sometimes He intrudes in our life in such a way where His power or His whatever it is kind of takes us by surprise. It kind of shocks us. But I'm telling you over and over again in the Scriptures, what you'll find more often than not is God's people have been praying for it, they've been expecting it, and they've been preparing for it. So that it doesn't throw them off guard. It doesn't cause them to go into a shock. They don't step back and go, what in the world just happened? They've been longing for it. And so every, I mean, everything from before the Israelites crossed the Red Sea to freedom, God prepares them for it. He tells them, this is what's going to happen. Prepare yourselves in this way. And on the day of Pentecost, it isn't like this is shocking. They know this is right out of Joel. They've been in an upper room praying and preparing for this moment. It seems that more often than not, among God's people, God's activity doesn't come to a shock as to them as much as something that they've already been expecting and something that they've been preparing. I never get the, it doesn't seem very often I get the idea that they're thrown off by it. And I think this is a beautiful principle to live by. Like in our own lives, I think we as God's people really can prepare ourselves for God's miracles. That we can prepare our hearts and our lives for what God is about to do. And it's better for us always to receive them as what we expected rather than it threw us off guard and they were shocked to us. And this is why. This, because if God's miracle happen, happens, if, if a miracle from God happens in your life, you've been praying for it, you've been asking for it, you've been expecting it, you've been anticipating it. When it happens, what's the first thing you're going to say? Praise God, it happened. You've been waiting for this. You've been longing for this. You've been expecting this. But if you've not been praying for it or expecting it or preparing it, and the miracle of God happens in your life, you know what you're going to say? The first thing you're going to say is, what happened? And then everything in you has got to figure out what just took place in your life. Was that from God or was that not from God? And sometimes Satan works in such a way where he plants those seeds of doubts where even though God just answered a prayer and acted in a mighty way, you've got to try to explain it away. Well, maybe the doctors weren't really right to begin with. I mean, maybe that really wasn't the diagnosis. Or maybe this was never really said in that relationship, and even though God just did a miracle and put it back together again, maybe it really... And so you've got to kind of work your way around that. And I'm telling you, I think it's always best to go into God's miracles expecting it, Praying for it, preparing for it, and getting ready to see what it is that God does. And that's what happens in the beginning of Joshua 3. It isn't like, hey, tomorrow we're all going to be thrown off guard and shocked. No, no, from the very outset, this is what God is going to do. Tomorrow he's going to do amazing things for you and in you and among you and prepare yourselves to receive that miracle of God. And so in that, I would say for us, even as the Living Stones Church, we've been praying now for years, years, for the 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend. Really, we've been praying for that for years. What if God, in a move of his power, just called 1,000 of those 42, 5,000 people to Living Stones Church? I mean, think about that for just a moment. If you work out the percentages, 1,000 of 42,500 is really just 0.025%. What if, I mean, that would be for us a big deal, but it would be a tragedy if it were a shock to us. Like if we didn't know it was coming, like, oh my goodness, now what do we do? And then you get overwhelmed in the process. It comes as a shock. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to minister to that. How do we deal with that? And I'm telling you, I see that all the time happening, not only in churches, but in our personal lives, where we ask God to give you, you ask God to give you something, and then you don't prepare for it at all. Like nothing in your life prepares for the reality that God wants to answer your prayer. And so God's in heaven, I'd like to give this to you, but you're not prepared for it because you yourself aren't taking seriously your prayer and getting ready for the answer of that prayer. And so at the Living Stones Church, if we've been praying to God to send us as many as the 42,500 as we can stand to be in relationship with Him and with us, but if we hadn't prayed for it or prepared for it, 
or structured the church for it to handle it or coordinated our resources to minister to those who are broken or hurt or impoverished, in the end, it would overwhelm us. And even though God was doing a mighty act among us, we'd be like, we are overwhelmed, we're struggling, we don't know what to do. So we don't want to go at it like that. We want to go at it like, no, we asked for this, we prepared for this, we're ready for it. Because in that posture, then when God does it, what do you get to do? You just get to celebrate, right? There's no heartache. It's like, woohoo! thank you, God. This is what we've been praying for and what we've been preparing ourselves for to receive God's promises. So I love the first six, six verses here that I think instructs us we shouldn't just sit by passively, but rather we should know that God is going to act and move in a major way. And it's active. It's not even open, right? It's not like, well, I'm open to that. I don't think even God wants us to be open about his miracles. In the same way you don't want to be, right? you don't want to, you don't want to have heart surgery, and your heart surgeon comes in, and he says, no, I'm open to having a good surgery, right? You're like, open? No, I want you to be like 100% confident this is going to take place, right? I mean, you don't want to go to your financial advisor, yeah, I'm open to you making a profit this year. Like, open? I mean, I want somebody who's confident that I'm going to, we're going to work the stock market in a way, and we're going to come out, I mean, the, I mean we, we don't want just open, we want to be ready, prepared, fully expecting. This is how every war and every mission is won, through adequate preparation and training. It doesn't take anything away from God. It's God that's going to act. It's God that's going to move. It is God who's going to bring it about. We just want to prepare ourselves to receive it. So if, you're, like if you've been praying to God, Lord, would you, I would love to have a husband or a wife, the question would be, well, how much have you prepared yourself to receive a husband or wife? And I find all the time, like, oh, Lord, send me a wife. You know, I'm, I'm lonely, and, but you're not doing anything to prepare for how will you be a good husband and what that will look like for you. And so if you're going to ask God for that, you should prepare for that. Or some of you are asking, God, would we like children in our home? Would you allow us to be blessed with an increase? Such a, the question would be, well, have you prepared yourself to receive God's answer in that? I mean, what have you done as a family to prepare for more children or whatever it is? Maybe it's you've asked God to reconcile a part of your family back together again that's broken, and have you prepared yourself for that, what that would look like, the timing of that, those sorts of things? And in that we find it's okay for us to prepare to receive God's miracles in our life. And I get if you're a type A personality, how many Let's confess this. Type A personalities. Well, here you go. Yeah, type B people looking around. These are the ones that irritate you. And I get it. I'm one of them. I, yeah, I totally, totally get it. Sometimes in that type A personality, right, you start planning, preparing, you're ready to go. I'm like, let's just get right to it. There's no point of waiting. But I think the point here is, no, we always keep our eyes on God. And even though it's okay to make preparations, our eyes are squarely focused on Him. And I think this is the point that you see in verse 3. If you've got your Bibles, look at verse 3. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, just real quick in terms of background, let me, this is kind of an artist's rendering of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, what you'll realize is the Ark of the Covenant was the most special piece within the temple of God, ultimately, because it was known that God dwells among the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. It always represented God's presence. So when you read Ark of the Covenant, it isn't just meaning, hey, a nice gold-plated piece of furniture. What it means is God is present in the Ark of the Covenant. And so even in Joshua 3, it isn't like, all right, just jump right to it. It is... Now, stay where you're at, and you need to wait and prepare yourself for the Ark of the Covenant who will go before you. That when the Ark goes out, it will be the presence of God who will be on the move, and we'll just follow and cooperate after Him. Because life is easier when you're following after God. Right? Rather than just jumping out and doing it on your own, if you'll just have enough patience to... Because sometimes you could do the right thing, it's just in the wrong timing. That's why we want to be sensitive to the Spirit of God who dwells in us, and in the Spirit of God that dwells in us, not only are we getting the right thing down, but at the right timing. Because if you jump on that before the Spirit of God, then oftentimes it doesn't work out. And it isn't like you did the wrong thing. It's just God saying, yeah, but I was waiting for these things to come together and for this to come into alignment and then to do it. And see, the same thing with those who are following after God in, in Joshua 3. Don't jump out 
Keep your eyes focused on the Ark of the Covenant, which is to symbolize God's presence among them. And the reason why that's so important is in verse 4. Joshua 3 verse 4 says what? You will know which way to go and why. You've never been here before. I mean, of course you don't know where to go. Of course you don't know the road map. You've never been in this situation before. And I can't tell you how many times recently here at the Living Stones Church, we've had leaders meetings where we can't look at each other and say, well, what's your experience in this? Because none of us have experience in that. I don't know. We've never been here before. This has never happened before. We've never had to figure out how to, right? And so it isn't, oh, well, we're all lost. It's, no, let's keep our eyes on the Spirit of God and let Him move forward to keep our eyes on the presence of God, and He'll show us where to go because He's already got it covered. He knows where we should go, and that's what comes out in verse 4. The following God, I'm telling you, in your life will ultimately, will undoubtedly take us into places that we've never been before, dealing with people and situations that we have never dealt with before. We'll encounter opposition that we've never encountered before, and we'll have doors of opportunity open up that have never been opened before. But here's in the end, watch God, because he already knows where it is that we ought to go. And so the first six verses of Joshua, chapter 3, calls us to a radical dependency and trust in God. It says, watch, prepare, and know that it is, but he'll accomplish this feat. An awesome, powerful, gracious, promise-keeping God, a God so holy that the people are told to stay a thousand yards away from, a thousand yards, picture in your mind, you know what that is? Ten football fields away from the ark. But verse 5, he calls them to consecrate themselves, which is to purify themselves, because they're going to participate with the holy. Like they're about to encounter, there's going to be a crossroads in their life with God, and they're going to encounter the holy, and in that they need to prepare themselves. And that same thing happens to us today. Times of repentance, times of confession, times of cleansing, and then to live in expectation. Tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things and for us to expect it and i'm telling you when we begin to have that spirit of expectancy it will change our prayer lives let's move on verse 7 is where we're at now let me read verse 7 it says this and the lord then said to joshua today i will exalt you in the eyes of all the of all israel so that they may know that i am with you just as i was with moses tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant when you reach the edge of the jordan's waters go and stand in the river so Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that listen, this is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. They're going to be so sick of the ites by the time this is all done. There's ites everywhere. Verse eleven, see? The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, listen, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, or the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho, and the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground, in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. 
So we begin with God's promise that he will be with Joshua just like he was in Mo- with Moses. Now, that's what he promised. We said last week in chapter 1, God said to Joshua, don't worry, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. And here in chapter 3, God says, I'm going to show the whole people that I will be with you just like I was with Moses. But if you'll notice, though, the people's eyes are not supposed to be on Joshua. In fact, even Joshua's speech itself, what does he say? Keep your, see the Ark of the Covenant. Joshua, who will lead the people, will deflect attention from himself and put it on the presence of God. And I love, that's in verse 11, in chapter 4, verse 11. See the ark of the Lord, of the, all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Watch the ark. Watch what God will do. And in the end, he says, and by the way, this is a great point of leadership for those who are serving in the community of God's people, that the focus is never on the leader. The leader is never to stand in front of everybody and say, look at me, look at how great I am, look where I'm about to lead you. He always stands aside because when the presence of God, he's always pointing to the presence of God. So Joshua does, right? Not look at me, but look at the ark. You can watch the ark and follow after the presence of God. That's what a good leader of God's people does. And so in the end, verse 10, the purpose is this, to know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly... And then it goes on to about take care of this nation and this nation and this nation. You know what it's really saying? Then you will know that God will keep all of his promises. That's his promise. God has made a promise to his people. What Joshua says is tomorrow when we see this, we will know that God will keep his promise. And so Joshua tells the people it's about to happen. When you get to verse 14, he's done with his instructions and now they're going to live it out. I mean, they live out what they got. I mean, could you imagine what it must have felt like to have heard the stories of when God rescued his people from Egypt? Like a long time ago. In fact, out of the entire nation of Israel at this moment, only two people could even remember that. Because everybody, remember the story, everybody died in the wilderness? Only two people can remember that. Do you know who they are? Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two people in the entire nation who could go back and remember when Moses at the Red Sea had parted and they all got to go on dry land of freedom. And God's about to do right now what he did back then once again to part the River Jordan so that they could go across it on dry land. The, uh, uh, the, the focus here, the, the intentionality of similarity between the Red Sea, it's deliberate, it's intentional, it's God's way of saying, I am the same God who delivered my people out of Egypt. I'm going to be the same God who keeps my promises to the people in the promised land. And by the way, just so you know this morning, he is the same God who you prayed to this week and asked him for whatever it is. It's the same God whose promises will always come to pass. They are, in the end, unstoppable. We also learn in verse 15, though, that this isn't just like a little wading creek that they got to get across. It's the River Jordan at flood stage. And I don't know what that would really look like. Here's a picture of the river. I don't know if that's flood stage or not, but that is a picture of the River Jordan today. And an entire nation has got to pass through there. And it says what happens is, just picture this in your mind. The priests, put, as soon as they put their feet in the water, the water stops flowing. I mean, it just stops. And it piles up into a great big heap. Could you imagine... And, of course, my curious brain just wants to know, like, could you see the fish in it? Like, when you're walking by, would it be like, oh, look at the fish. In the, I get to see it. Look at it. And everything was cut off, and there's a great heap, and they all walk on dry ground. And so the climax of the story comes in verse 17. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. I mean, it's just crazy. In the middle of the Jordan. Well, I wonder if, like, the, the St. Joe River, like, found cars and tires. Uh, anyhow. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation has completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, here's what happens in chapter 4. We begin chapter 4 with a neat literary move. The story is told in chapter 3. Like, you get the story of what happened, what God did with Joshua in Israel in chapter 3. When you get to chapter 4, this is what chapter 4 does. It takes one part of the story told in chapter 3 and then expands on it. 
Did you get some, you get what it's doing? It says, let me tell you some, let me, this one incident here. Let me tell you what else happened. And so it tries to expand on its part. In fact, uh, chapter uh, 12, 12 men, when we're going across the River Jordan, get a big stone. Like, pick up a big, massive stone and carry it with you to the other side. How would you like to be picked for that? You know, somebody's got a hay bale, but you've got a large, massive stone on you. So here's what chapter 4 picks up with. When they arrive at Gilgal, which is across the way, they're going to take those 12 stones and they're going to establish a memorial in which they'll remember the miracle of God. In fact, let me show you a map of, of Israel at the time so you can kind of see what's going on. You see the water sources there in the very center. At the very top is uh, what's called the Sea of Galilee in the days of Jesus. Now, it's not called that now, but the Sea of Galilee is at the very north end there. And the, see the water running through to the, to the Dead Sea at the very bottom? That's the River Jordan. If you see there are the two little dots closest to the bottom by the Dead Sea, that's, the, that's Gilgal and that's Jericho. So they've crossed the River Jordan about that spot. As, and so that's where they're crossing, right? And you got the Dead Sea. Do you all know about the Dead Sea, why it's dead? Do you all know that why it's dead? It's because uh, the Dead Sea, there's water that runs into it, but it has no outlet. Like, so it's not a continual flow through the body of water. It dies there in the Dead Sea. So it's a salt water body. It has no outlet, which in itself is another sermon. Like what happens to people when there's no outlets? In their, but anyhow, that's another time. Uh, it is the lowest place on the, like the uh, sea level is measured here at the Dead Sea, lowest spot on the face of the earth. So that's where they're crossing over through the Jordan. Okay? And so uh, let's go to verse 1 of chapter 4. Here's what it says here. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Can you hang with me? I'll read fast. Let's see if we can see if Paul can hang with me. Let's see. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as, enough, to serve as a sign among you. So in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So... The Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that, he had, been in, that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Whenever this was written, a long time after the actual event, the writer wants you to know, and if you go to Gilgal, they're still there. Those 12 stones are still sitting there. Now the priest who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priest came to the other side while the people watched. And the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who was camping out on the east side, crossed over, armed in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And just so you want to know what the end of the story is like, you know, sometimes leaders start well, but they don't end well. We got a good, he lets us know up front here, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests, carry the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come on up out of the Jordan. And the priest came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. 
No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. Isn't that amazing? On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. And he said this to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And so what we see in this moment is the purpose and function of these stones. It's mentioned twice, right? Two times. When your children ask, you'll have a story to tell. See, when your kids see these stones, you'll have a story to tell of how God always keeps his promises. And as we saw in verse 9, it says, they're there to this day. It's a reminder that God always keeps his promises. That the stones become a sign to the people of the living reality of God's power. Even though the stones remain stones, they aren't just stones. They are a living sign of what God has done. The 12 stones will have great symbolic meaning. It means that all Israel got to participate in the miracle of God. And I need to tell you, I think we should do this. I mean, really, I, I think we should have, like, bigger than this, but I couldn't carry this long in front of you and I'd be embarrassed of my manliness. But, like, I think, I mean, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think out of every church in South Bend, nobody is better equipped with stones than we are. <laughs> and we should have stones that just mark our journey. That allow us to look back at them and be able to tell the stories of what God has done in our midst. I mean, I really think we should just like have little, I mean, we don't worship those stones. Israel don't worship, they didn't worship the 12 stones. They're just markers in our journey that allow, when our kids and our grandkids say, well, what's that all about? What's that stone about? We get to say, oh, one day Linda Templeton, who we love, was diagnosed with cancer. Went into the doctors, had the test, had the scan, she had cancer. She went in for surgery and we were there in the lobby when the surgeon came out and said, we can't find anything. And they had to close her up and let her go. Because we prayed for that. We asked for that. There should be a stone that just says to us, this is our story. So that the futures down the line will remember in major trauma or crisis or disease or sickness, we have a God who heals and we be, we're able to ask for those sorts of things. We should have a stone that represents, yeah, that, that's when God added so many to our number. We went from one service to two services or two services or to three services because God is good like that because he's made us a promise. Or we should have a stone that represents... That's when we got together at the YMCA and saw 36 people get baptized and had delicious fried chicken. And don't leave out the fried chicken part. It's part of our story. Or we could talk about, look at that stone. Well, what is that story all about? Ah, that's when we invited hundreds of kids from Monroe to come over here last, on a Saturday in September, and they did. And we got to wash their feet and pray for them and put brand new tennis shoes on them. And it was just a remarkable day for us as a community. Or what about when we have, maybe someday we'll have a stone. Well, what's that all about? We could say, oh, that's that one morning where we all gathered together. We just sent out 250 people to start a Livingstone's church on the east side of South Bend. That's what that stone represents. Or what about that one? That's when the Miami Hills apartments were so dark and we were able to purchase it and we changed it into something entirely different. Or what's that stone about? Oh, that's when major revival hit Dubell Street. And it was just amazing what God did. And you would have never guessed it, but there it is. And this allows us to tell our stories and recount this is what God did in this moment. Well, what about that one? That's when we sent a Livingstone's church to a different country. What about that one? Ah, that's when the 10,000th person became all in at a Livingstone's church somewhere in the world. 
What about that one? Oh, that's a good stone. That's finally when Sam decided to retire. We got to hand the baton off to a much better pastor and a much better leader. I wasn't counting on that much laughter, to be quite honest with you. And honestly, just as a sidebar, I mean, stones, I mean, we got a lot of stones, but when, like, Doug puts together those videos for us, in all honesty, those are for me, those stones that tells our story, that allows us to go back so we don't forget. So when my kids ask or when my grandkids ask, we could show those videos and say, you need to see what God did in this place and how he did it. Just a remarkable thing. This is to remember the journey. It's important that we have something tangible that we can see and serve as a sign or a symbol and a story of, oh, this is how powerful our God is. And in the end, I would ask you, even personally and individually, what are your memorial stones? And what are those things in your personal life that you can date back to? This is the, I had my last drug on that day. And you could date it. And you have a stone that says, I've been free and sober for this long. That's what God did. Or this is where I was at the point of complete disaster. My marriage was in complete shambles. This was going on in my finances. And God intervened in this way. And there's a story to go along with it. And there's a stone. And so you should keep them on your coffee table or your mantle or wherever you want to put it so that when your kids or your grandkids come over to the house and say, well, what's that about? You could say, let me tell you about my God and what he did. This is what this story is all about. And by the way, we just took one just a little bit ago. You might not have known it together, but just a memorial, tangible, incarnational. When we took of the bread and the cup together, it just seems so meaningless, doesn't it? Just a little tiny trickle is what it looks like. It's stuck in your molar or something. I mean, you get what I'm saying? But Jesus, he's so smart. He just, no, I, I get that in and of itself. It seems so, so insignificant. But what it is is it's a way for us to have something tangible and something real and something concrete to remember that we've been rescued. That in our own life, we were able to cross on dry ground when it felt like we were going to be overwhelmed by the flood that was coming at us. And so it has a story attached of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy, the blood of Jesus, to rescue us from where we were. And so there they are at the end of chapter 4. There it is in Gilgal. Twelve stones. And Gilgal, Gilgal does become a significant place. In terms of history, it's sort of to Israel what Philadelphia was to the United States. So when the, Gilgal becomes really the very first capital of the Israelites. It's the place where a nation and a new land gets formed. Now the capital will eventually end up in Jerusalem, just like for us in the United States, Philadelphia will eventually get moved over to Washington, D.C. But at least for now, in our story, Gilgal is that place where they begin as a nation to take over the new land that God had promised 500 years before. It is the place where all the Israelite men will get circumcised. A very painful story, by the way, that we're about to come to next. They will celebrate the very first Passover after they had wandered for an entire generation in the wilderness. It will be the base of their operations. You remember Caleb, the other faithful man next to Joshua? He'll get Hebron, which is in this area and region of Gilgal, as his inheritance and as his reward for saying yes to God when everyone around him said no. This will be the place where the prophet Samuel will one day, he will sit and he will judge the people of Israel from Gilgal. This will be the place where Saul will be anointed king, and later in the story, tragically, it will also be the place where he is rejected as king. It will be here in Gilgal that David, after he flees from Jerusalem in exile, he will meet with the men of Judah, and after his son Absalom is dead, take back his throne. But for now, and most importantly, this is where the 12 stones stand. The 12 stones that remind us of God's power and promise that he will always be faithful. And so I love how it ends here in verse 24. Look at verse 24. This is how it ends. All these things happen because, you know why? So that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. 
And so out of these two chapters, I'm telling you, God has made his promises, and they'll be unstoppable. But as we receive them, it's okay for us to pray for them, to expect them, to celebrate them, and to live in the reality, and then in the end, to tell our stories faithfully to generations to come so they will know that the hand of our God is powerful and that our children and their children's children might learn to fear the Lord our God. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning to thank you for being a God who is faithful to your promises. And Lord, I ask that you would give us a spirit that has greater expectation, greater anticipation for your miracles at work in our lives. And I pray that we'd have eyes to see that, and in the end, they won't throw us off, they won't shock us, but these are the very things we've been asking for. And so we ask that you'd increase our faith in that, but in the end, we'll get to celebrate that and have in our lives these stones, and whatever they might look like for us, stones that we can point back to and tell our stories that our God is good, that he is great, and even when we turned away and were unfaithful, he never stopped being crazy in love with us. And because of that, he rescued us when we most needed it. And for that, we'll say thank you. And would you build not only in us, but in the generations to come, a great faith in you, a faith that will change the world and create revolution all around for your glory's sake. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.